is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Mark Levin here, our number 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. Day four of the trial in the Eastern District of Virginia of Paul Manafort, and uh, some very interesting events took place. This via Fox News, the judge in the Paul Manafort trial reminded special counsel Robert Mueller's team today of the high bar for conviction, that they must prove the former Trump campaign chairman knowingly violated tax and bank laws related to his political work overseas. U.S. District Court Judge T.S. Ellis III indicated he believes the prosecution has demonstrated Manafort had control of foreign bank accounts despite checking a box on tax returns saying he didn't have them. But Ellis reminded prosecutors, quote, the government has to prove that Manafort knew what the requirement was and that he deliberately violated it. Manafort facing charges of bank and tax fraud related to his political work in the Ukraine has pleaded not guilty to all charges. A source close to Manafort's team told Fox News the defense has not yet decided whether to have Manafort testified during the trial. Uh, this person said they will make the decision after the prosecution rests its case, which should be next week. Today's testimony is focused on the tax fraud charges. The years involved 2010 to 2014 were before Manafort worked for President Trump's campaign. Though the case stems from Mueller's probe of election meddling by Russia and so-called collusion by the Trump campaign, there's been no mention of election interference. On Friday, Philip Ayilev, a CPA who prepared Manafort's taxes, testified Manafort signed tax returns that showed none checked for any foreign bank accounts between the years 2010 and 2014. The government pointed out that Manafort signed his tax returns under penalty of perjury. Well, we all do that. Now, I don't know about Manafort or so forth. We all do our best on our taxes. But the tax code, here's the deal. The tax code is so complicated that a lot of people have to hire Certified public accountants, CPAs. And the CPAs go through the material that the person gives to them. The CPA, at least a good one, will also indicate that they need certain other information and they'll ask them questions and they'll give them suggestions. And then at the end of all this, you get a tax return and you sign it under penalty of perjury. This is one of the reasons I argue, have been arguing for decades. For either a flat tax or a fair tax, that is, either a national sales tax and the complete elimination of the federal income tax, or a flat tax where everybody pays the same amount, get rid of most of the IRS, get rid of most of the Internal Revenue Code, because people, putting Manafort aside, don't know. Really, in many cases, if they're filing the right tax return information or not. They rely on experts. And then when you get an expert at a and a trial says, yes, well, he didn't do this and he didn't do that. And the government says, and he signed it under penalty of perjury, didn't he? Well, yes, don't we all? Of course, uh, those people out there who are on the dole, who never paid taxes, who don't have to file tax returns, they don't have this problem. They just take our money. 
But that for another day. Prosecutor Uza Osanye walked a lift, the, the accountant, through each year and asked, what did Mr. Manafort say for this year for farm bank accounts? Aleph responded, none for each one. Prosecution also showed documents where the accountant emailed Manafort asking if he had foreign accounts. Manafort responded that he didn't. But Mueller's team says Manafort repeatedly used accounts in Cyprus to pay for an array of luxury items and services. Now remember, this is only one side right now. Prosecutors have introduced a host of exhibits and are in the process of calling several witnesses part of their effort to pay Manafort as a tax scaff law who failed to report money spent on luxury items, then lied to get bank loans when his foreign consulting work dried up. The prosecution has released exhibit photos of Manafort's expensive clothes. Wow, that's compelling. On Thursday, Manafort's bookkeeper, Heather Washkun, of the firm NKFSB, testified that Manafort racked up large bills but struggled to pay them in 2016. There's come a time in 2016 when Mr. Manafort had trouble paying his bills. Prosecutor Greg Andres asked the accountant in federal court in Alexandria, Virginia. Yes, she replied. Now, again, this is all, well, he had big bills. Well, he had trouble paying his bills. Well, he lived a lavish lifestyle. That's not the test, the judge points out. The government has to prove that he knew what the requirement was and that he deliberately violated it. That's what the government has to prove. Time will tell. The uh, prosecution goes on until much of next week, and then the defense uh, takes the stand. That's how that works. Then there's cross-examination, and there's other things that occur as well. Of course, the, the prosecution's key witness is this guy, Gates, who uh, pled and got a deal, uh, and he better sing like a bird for the government, otherwise uh, the deal could crumble right in front of his face. I, I don't like these deals. It's, it's really troublesome to me. The whole point here of a trial, what is the point of a trial? To get to the truth. To get to the truth. If you're handing out deals after threatening people with prosecution, like handing out uh, uh, M&Ms, on Halloween, uh, that's a problem to me. Is it not to you? I know it goes on all the time. That doesn't make it right. So that's our update. I'll keep a daily update for you on the uh, on the trial that has absolutely nothing to do with Donald Trump. Nothing to do with the original mandate of the special counsel. Nothing to do with anything, actually. Uh, but it is a point of interest, I think. Now, I want to get back to this issue of socialism since it's rather prominent these days there's another article here by Fox Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez the socialist congressional candidate from New York who touts honestly and authentically and authenticity rather as her greatest strengths used to describe herself as a follower of Adam Smith the so-called father of capitalism we're starting to See here, ladies and gentlemen, that this woman is a complete and utter fraud, as are most leftists. Capitalism. And said that term, and that terms like feminism and empowerment were relics from the past. Oh, my goodness. 
Since then, she's come out as an unapologetic democratic socialist, wishing to see greater taxation and expansion and creation of wide-ranging social programs such as single-payer health care system, free education, and housing as a right. I think my strength is I'm honest and authentic, she said on The Daily Show. But not that long ago, 28-year-old Ocasio-Cortez harbored a lot milder, if not radically different, view. During her time at Boston University, where she studied economics and international relations and graduated in 2011 with cum laude honors, she described herself as a believer in Adam Smith's analysis and wrote a number of blog posts hinting at her views, according to posts reviewed by Fox News. She believes in Mahatma Gandhi's methods, Adam Smith's analyses, and Pablo Neruda's love. Her experiences growing up in a Puerto Rican household, from the boroughs to beyond, has afforded her a uniquely American experience with all the tragedy and hilarity it accom- that accompanies it. She described herself in a student-run publication called BU Culture Shock, which she co-founded. In a 2009 blog post... Ocasio-Cortez called feminism into question, writing that, quote, the terms feminism and empowerment don't seem to capture the priorities of our generation, and the words themselves sound like relics from the past, frumpy and outdated, quote, unquote. Quote, we no longer live in the same fight for equality of prior generations. We've moved to the widely accepted reality that marginalizing 50% of a given population doesn't make much sense, mathematically or socially, she wrote. We no longer live in the same fight for equality of prior generations. Wow, she used to sound pretty smart. Must have banged her head or something. The New York Democrat could also learn a few things from herself, having written in a 2009 post that while health care in the U.S. is at its most critical crossroads in recent history, the debate about it is moving slowly for a good reason, she said. That reason being that, quote, health care is largely an intersection of money and people, which means health care discussions often involve the prioritizing of people according to available funds. How can one possibly measure the needs of children, the elderly, the sick, and the healthy against one another? Most blog posts written during Ocasio-Cortez's reign at the publication which include articles like Donald Trump's 2012 run for president and Israel-Palestine conflict aren't available, and only a select few were reviewed by Fox News. Why don't they make them all available? We want to know what this future the Democrat Party has to say. Now, Boston University's Howard Thurman Center, which sponsored the publication, said the archives couldn't be located as the staff of the center changed and new staffers lacked access to the old posts. Well, how convenient. Yet, her claim of being a follower of a pro-capitalist economist, a libertarian, will surely raise questions about her authenticity. As Adam Smith, the 18th century Scottish economist, advocated free market capitalism and opposed government regulations, contrary to what she, a card-carrying Democratic Socialist of America member, now pitches on the campaign trail. There's just no doubt about it. Howard Husak, a Manhattan Institute senior fellow, told Fox News about Smith being a polar opposite of the New York Socialists. First of all, Adam Smith believes so strongly in price signals, which are telling us what's desired, what's being offered. It allows people who are selling things to adjust their prices to meet demand. They're just central to how the whole economy works. So as soon as you have Medicare for all, you essentially are abolishing price signals when it comes to health care because 
The government is not just a one more competitor or one more choice. It kills the whole playing field, and it goes on. Now, of course, our magnificent free press, always working very hard to get to the bottom of things, not just to celebrate leftists, of course, never found any of this. Not MSNBC, not CNBC, ABC, CBS, NBC, New York Times, Washington Post, none of them. None of them dare look into the background of this lady any more than any of them will look into the background of Barack Milhouse, Benito, Obama. They don't want to know. See, one of the things the media do, oh, excuse me, the free press do in this country is they pick and choose, obviously, what guests they want. And by doing that, they either promote an ideological position or by omission, they kill one that is an ideological position. They're very manipulative. I'll be right back. Mark Socialism, communism, democratic socialism, national socialism, fascism, all these isms. What's wrong with Americanism, constitutionalism, republicanism, capitalism? As you know, uh, and we're going to continue to do this, we spend a lot of time talking about history and philosophy, talking about particularly the founders and the framers and the ratifiers of the Constitution. And uh, we talk about the Civil War, all the wars, and everything in between. During the course of this show. Uh, And I want to bring to you an additional point of view. When it comes to Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez and others who are pushing this ideology of the left. You can call it socialism, democratic socialism, Marxism, Leninism. They're they're all really of the same family, aren't they? Same genre. There was a reporter who was also a philosopher in France. His name was Raymond Aron, A-R-O-N. I've written about him in uh, one of my prior books. And he wrote a book called The Opium of the Intellectuals. Absolutely brilliant was the gentleman. The Opium of the Intellectuals. And he attacks this entire notion of the proletariat. The proletariat is supposed to be the workers, you see. The bourgeois, the managers, the property owners. And very simply... And almost simplistically, what Marx and his ilk say is that you basically have to blow out the ownership class um, and destroy the society as is because it's a remnant of past uh, unequal and unjust societies. Clean the slate and give all the power to the people, the proletariat, the middle class, as he framed it, and now everybody frames it, the working people. 
This is why I reject this whole notion of populism and the forgotten man. We are America. We haven't forgotten anybody. If our government policies are aimed at helping certain people and harming certain people, either intentionally or unwittingly, then we attack the policies. But to argue for group representation and to embrace groupthink is to reject the whole notion of the Enlightenment, the Western Enlightenment. First of all, this definition of the term class, as Iran puts it, which is perhaps more widely used than any other concept in the current language of politics, is a source of passionate argument. What is the class? Why is it so often considered difficult to define the working class? No definition can trace precisely the limits of a category. At what stage in the hierarchy does the skilled worker cease to belong to the proletariat? Is the manual worker in the public services a proletarian, even though he receives his wage from the state and not from the private employer? Do the wage earners in commerce, whose hands manipulate the objects manufactured by others, belong to the same group as the wage earners in industry? Now, this is a very, very interesting point, and we'll continue to pursue it and others when we return. Mark Levin Show, live and national at 877-381-3811. So what I'm doing here is is pointing out how absolutely irrational uh, these uh, ideologies based on, what should we call them, based on communalism actually are. Whether it's called national populism whether it's called socialism, democratic socialism, new time liberalism as opposed to classical liberalism, uh, whether it's called Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, Trotskyism, they're irrational. So let us repeat the point that uh, I have actually made this point in my own book, Liberty and Tyranny, but let's repeat the point in The Opium, Opium of the Intellectuals by Raymond Aron. And I would ask you this, if you can't even accurately define the class that you're saying should rise up, the proletariat, the working class, the middle class, then how does your ideology make sense at all? The definition of the term class, and by the way, you won't find that word in the Constitution and you won't find it in the Declaration. The definition of the term class, which is perhaps more widely used than any other concept in the current language of politics, is a source of passionate argument. Why is it so often considered difficult to defining the working class? No definition can trace precisely the limits of a category. At what stage in the hierarchy does the skilled worker cease to belong to the proletariat? Is the manual worker in the public services a proletarian? even though he receives his wages from the state and not from a private employer? Do the wage earners in commerce, whose hands manipulate the objects manufactured by others, belong to the same group as the wage earners in industry? There can be no dogmatic answer to such queries. They have no common criterion. According to whether one considers the nature of the work, the method, and the amount of the remuneration, and the style of life, 
one will or will not include certain workers in the category of proletarians. The garage mechanic, a wage-earning manual worker, is in a different position and has a different outlook on society from the worker employed on an assembly line in a motor car factory. There's no such thing as quintessence of the proletariat to which certain wage earners belong. There is merely a category whose center is clearly defined and is and its periphery is vague. This problem of definition would not in itself have aroused such passionate controversy, but the Marxist doctrine ascribed to the proletariat a unique mission. Some say to change history, others to achieve humanity. How can the millions of factory workers dispersed among thousands of enterprises be the instruments of such an undertaking, which raises another problem, that of establishing not the limits of the proletariat, but the characteristics which make it a unity. So so-called democratic socialism, we already debunked that phrase, but democratic socialism is not even a good abstraction. It's not even a good theory. It's an impossibility because they can't even define their basic term, class. Let's take another term, if we will, general will, the general will of the people. The best interests of the people. Well, what does that mean? Who decides what the general will and best interests of the people are? A handful of masterminds? Who gets to decide that? This is me speaking. And there's more. The fact of the matter is, let's see here. If Marxism gives a privileged position to the proletariat, to the class, the working class, it is because through the inherent logic of their condition, through their most instinctive ways of life, regardless of all messianic illusions, the proletarians who are not gods are and are alone in a position to realize humanity. That's the supposition. It's absurd. It has nothing to do with individualism. And who knows and best judges these sorts of things? Nothing. Philosophers have the right to hope that the proletarian will not become integrated with the existing order, but that he will preserve himself for a revolutionary action. But they cannot, in the mid-20th century, represent as a fact the universality of the industrial worker. In what sense can the French proletariat split up among various rival organizations be called the only authentic intersubjectivity? In other words, even people in this class that cannot be defined are different they don't all agree in revolution they don't all agree in socialism or communism there is no unified proletariat it can't even be defined but it's not unified and by the way why must the proletariat be revolutionary that is working people in the working class still not defined But why do they have to be revolutionary? The people who work the assembly lines of our car companies, they're not revolutionaries. Our coal workers aren't revolutionaries. And I could go on and on and on. So why must they be revolutionary? Why must they be socialists? Democratic socialists to boot. Not all proletarians, not all working people have the feeling of being exploited or oppressed. 
And there's no evidence that the proletariat, remember proletariat is working people, middle class, so forth, is spontaneously revolutionary. There's no evidence whatsoever. This whole notion of socialism is a joke. Now, the proletariat sets up itself up as a class only to the extent that it acquires a unity. This can only result from opposition to the other classes. So in other words, the proletariat is its struggle against society. In what way would the victorious workers fighting the other workers not alienate those other workers? What if they don't all agree? What if they don't all agree? What if they're not all alienated? What if they're not all revolutionary? What happens then? But let's look at the basic grievances that the, that the left throws out there, the Marxists like Bernie Sanders et al. Inadequate pay, excessive working hours, the threat of unemployment, discontent arising from the technical administrative organization of the factory, the feeling of being in a rut with no possibility of advancement, the consciousness of being the victim of a basic injustice, and that the system either does not allow the worker a fair share of the national wealth or refuses him any part in the management of the economy. Marxist propaganda is at pains to foster the awareness of a basic injustice and to confirm, to confirm it by theory of exploitation. This propaganda does not succeed in every country. In country where the immediate claims of the workers are to some extent satisfied, like the United States, the indictment of the government takes on the appearance of a sterile radicalism. A sterile radicalism. Even in countries where working conditions have been most improved, like in the United States, where private enterprise is in general accepted, there's still a prejudice against profit-making by the Marxist ideologues. A latent suspicion always ready to spring to the surface that the capitalist or the limited liability company or whatever as such exploit their workers. The Marxist interpretation accords with the outlook on society to which the workers spontaneously subscribe. That's the theory. There is no proof that collective ownership is more conducive to increase productivity than private ownership or effectively addresses any of these so-called grievances that Marxism, socialism, and all the rest of it raises. In fact, there's a lot of proof that they exacerbate it. Because economic growth, in and of itself, is a factor towards ameliorating these issues. Concrete improvements. Concrete improvements. Now, as I explained in Ameritopia, the ideologues, the status progressives, or as I really prefer to call them, the utopians. They want to be judged not so much on what is, but what will be. They want to be judged on their promises, not the outcome of past promises, which are quite problematic from their ideological point of view, are they not? So I want to keep addressing this. Planning and collective ownership eliminate certain forms of profit. But what don't they eliminate? 
They don't eliminate human greed for the worldly things and the desire for money. Planning and collective ownership do not eliminate human nature. Desire, want, needs. Inevitably, whatever an economy is called, whatever a government is called, it is built on a monetary system. A monetary system. And for the socialists and the communists and so forth, their abuse of the monetary system is simply one of redistributing wealth. They don't create anything. Idealist revolutionaries assign to the working class, which they cannot define, the superhuman mission of putting an end to the all-too-tangible evils of industrial society, while ignoring the massive, widespread wealth and luxuries that the supposed put-upon proletariat has access to. The contradiction between industrial wage earners and private employers is the one which communism has most difficulty in exploiting in the 20th century, in the 21st century, in the underdeveloped countries, because the proletarians are not numerous enough. In capitalist countries, they're not revolutionary enough. It achieves much greater success when it stirs up nationalistic passions, particularly in colonial countries but even in our own. Remember, there's a difference, and I've explained this repeatedly, and I wrote about it in uh, Rediscovering Americanism, between nationalism and Americanism. It is Americanism that we promote. It is Americanism that we revere. It is Americanism that we embrace. Now, why would we throw away the most advanced prosperous, freest, magnificent nation mankind has ever created for a theory that can't even define its fundamental terms. For a theory that is so defective it has resulted in the death and or poverty of tens of millions of people. Are we so foolish, indeed so moronic, that a few people running around telling us that we can have free health care, free college, free housing, that these are human rights, are we so foolish to adopt these bumper sticker labels and arguments that we would throw away our very liberty? Our very lifestyle? Does Bernie Sanders seem like a very sharp guy to you? A man of of worldly experience? How about this 28-year-old? Does she? How about most of the people who push this viewpoint? We know it can't work. We know it's an impossibility. We also know that time is late. Because more and more of our citizens embrace it. I'll be right back. Lovin.
know, it's the middle of the night, and you're tossing and turning, and you're covered in sweat. You could run the air conditioner or a fan to try and keep cool. Or why don't you get rid of your heat-trapping mattress and sleep as cool as the other side of the pillow like I do on my Casper mattress? Or you could get rid of your heat-trapping mattress. Yes. And that, you know how you can do it? Maybe you think you like it. You lean it up against the wall and order your Casper. All Casper mattresses use premium foams that relieve pressure and help align your body. So you fall asleep feeling comfortable and wake up feeling refreshed. And thanks to the breathable material, you're guaranteed to sleep cool all summer long. Casper ships for free in a box so small you won't even believe it holds a mattress. Now, that's so you can try it risk-free for 100 nights. They've changed the entire industry. They've changed the entire way mattresses are made and how comfortable they are. Now, if you don't love yours, they'll come pick it up and refund you everything. Sleep cool and comfortable every night by getting a Casper. Try yours for 100 nights, like I said, with free shipping and returns. So go to Casper.com, use code MARK for $50 towards the purchase of select mattresses. Now's the time to do it in the middle of a hot, muggy summer. That's Casper.com, code MARK. Casper.com, terms and conditions apply. And so we try to take on these issues and unravel them, don't we? Try to expose you to some of these writers and thinkers of the past, and of course to my own thinking and writing. Because there's a lot to be said against tyranny, and there's a lot to be said for liberty. And unfortunately, if it's not said here, you're probably not going to hear it much. It's like this issue about a free press. We've been talking about that now for several weeks. What is a free press? What does that mean? And I've spent some time talking to you about the history of the press. And also, uh, I was on Hannity last night. We discussed that at length. We're not debating whether or not we believe in a free press, which is the way the press of the moment, the Washington Press Corps, wishes to define this debate. You and I, we embrace a free press. We embrace free speech. We embrace the liberty of religion and so forth and so on. We have no problem with our Constitution and especially our Bill of Rights. So the issue isn't a free press. We defend and support a free press. The issue is the current people who are working in the press, many of whom are deceitful, many of whom are driven by ideology uh, and, uh, and that sort of thing. And we will point out which media institutions, unfortunately the vast majority of them, and which so-called reporters or news people working for these institutions, unfortunately a majority of them, are doing what they're doing. And as I said on Hannity last night, and as I have said behind this microphone, we have a media in this country that has called tens of millions of people who voted for Donald Trump, who they obviously opposed, Nazis, racists, cultists. They agree with Hillary that we are deplorables and on and on and on. Really, uh, all the attention Trump gets for calling out the fake media and saying the fake media is the enemy of the people. As again, I pointed out last night and I pointed out on this radio show. Why do the media hate the people? You call tens of millions of Americans Nazis and racists and cultists and so forth and so on? When has this ever happened? 
I think the current crop of people, as a rule, there are exceptions, who are in the media, are unprofessional. They're ideologically driven. And I also think the media today is highly, uh, well, is, has degraded the entire enterprise. So rather than being circumspect about what they're doing and how they're doing it, they continue to lash out. I'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Here on this Friday, our number 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. Now, I wouldn't normally take a caller this early in the second hour, but I think this might be useful. Janet, Beverly Hills, California, 870, the answer, go. Hello, Mark. Mark, Mark. Mark, I am uh, 59 years old. I'm a How may I help you, ma'am? Yes, what I'm calling about is... Um, you know, you know the, you know what is, what is the difference between a legal and an illegal uh, person? A, a legal person is a person under oath and and here legally. We we are no 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 no. A legal person is not a person under oath and here legally. A legal person is a citizen. Correct, correct. That's a legal person is a person who is here, who's followed the rules. You can have natural-born citizens. You can have people who become citizens. You can have people who are here legally as in, in residence. But what is your point? Right. I thought my you had a real point. point. My point is, Mark, is that during the Obama era, they went, uh, they went 1,000 miles an hour to take America into Marxist globalism. And, and they want citizens, especially home Marxist citizens. globalism. Tell me about the globalism part. What, what that means, Sean, is that you... No, no, I'm Mark. Ma'am, you got to really focus here. Focus on the globalism part. What did you mean by let's, that? Let's say you have 100 people uh, in Los Angeles. How, how is it if 46 of those people are here illegally or they're here... Ma'am, ma'am, you don't even know what you're talking about. Globalism, what does that have to do with illegal aliens? Mark, what I'm talking about is that people high up, people like Mark Zuckerberg, people like Bezos, they work best with cheap labor. They work best. Okay, with- I got it, ma'am. Ma'am, you're 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 kind of bringing us down here. You said you disagreed with me on populism and nationalism. What is this? You're you're going on about illegal aliens. I don't support the entrance into this country people illegally. That has nothing to do with populism, nationalism. That is to do with their immigration laws. Mark, Mark, I'm a widow. My husband was a veteran. I'm a Californian. I, I have lived in I, California. Ma- ma'am, ma'am, I, it's okay, and I don't even want your resume. What are you trying to say? Yes, I'm telling you that what has happened, especially during the Obama era, is that foreigns were brought, brought into America, especially California and New York, to replace, to, to uh, displace the citizenry. All right, thanks for your call. I mean, who's talked about this the most? About changing the nature of the citizenry, changing the nature of the voter? 
she told Mr. Call Screener she had a disagreement with me on populism, nationalism. She didn't even mention the words. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not really sure what was going on there. Um, and I apologize for that. Matt, Lake Mary, Florida, on the Mark Levin app. Go ahead. Hey, Mark. Uh, big honor to um, listen to you. I'm a loyal listener and one of the million podcast listeners. Thank you. Um, I think one... Um, no, you mean 5.5 million podcast listeners. Amen, brother. Um, I mean, no brag, I, just fact. We got 5.5 million podcast listeners. We've got almost 3 million app listeners. We've got God knows how many satellite radio listeners. We've got 8.5 million radio listeners. We got a lot of listeners. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sharing, the, um, sharing the news. Um, by the way, it's weird to listen to you at this speed. I usually listen to you at 1.5. But that being said... Um, well, it's kind of weird listening to you on your speakerphone. Can you speak right into the mouthpiece? Oh, sure. I'm sorry about that. And let's go. We're running out of time. All right. Um, the, the whole um, socialism um, kind of uh, thing for me is there's a lot of people who think of it in generality, and there's like this nameless faceless person that funds all of this and it's really annoying i own my own business and i'm kind of like wait a second put this in your own terms buddy like you need to look at this you know in a way where if, what if you were paying for these things personally what if you were you know giving some your neighbor free college you know and maybe you're doing it as a but reason. but here's how they look at it they look at it if i vote for somebody who says they're going to use the power of the government the uh, and and lawlessly vote in some statute to redistribute wealth, meaning take private property that somebody else possesses, and give it to me. Uh, that's pretty cool. So all of a sudden, theft is not only legalized; it's compassionate. And not only that, you don't have to thank the person you steal from. You just keep condemning them as the one percent, as uh, as business people, as. Uh, capitalist pigs and whatever, and you just keep voting for people who keep taking from them and giving to you. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, and there's, a, and there's this point, like the top 1%, and I think there was another caller that called in a couple weeks ago that said, well, once those people are gone, there'll be a new top 1%. Exactly. There's always a 1%, as I've liked to put it over the years, even if we were reduced to getting our own food in rice fields, somebody's going to get more rice than somebody else by the nature of their motivation, by the nature of their work, and suddenly you won't have pure equality. So that person will be considered, quote-unquote, rich in the top whatever percent, uh, and that'll always be the case. No doubt. And also you have, you know, the, I think the, the main problem with socialism and that mentality is that no one gets the reward of me working hard and, and, and going through the struggles and failing and all the things that go along with just life, general, you know, owning a business, going to college, all that stuff, just having a regular job. Right. Is, there's a reward of screwing up. And if you, if you can screw up and then learn from it and make your life better, great. Now I'm better than the next guy who is about ready to screw up. And- uh, very good. Good call. I appreciate it. Very, very true. Self-worth is what he's talking about. Free will uh, and self-worth. These are very, very important uh, human characteristics, which should be cherished, which should be promoted. Let's see. You know what? I'm sick of talking about the press. I'm sick of talking about the press. I'm sick of talking about Russia. I'm sick of talking about Mueller right now. I'm just sick of all these people. 
Aren't you? All right, let's go to Martin, Dothan, Alabama, XM Satellite. Go right ahead, sir. Hey, Mark, uh, I just had a quick point. You were exactly right. Uh, Before she ran as a Democratic Socialist, uh, Ocasio-Cortez started a publishing company where, when she was doing interviews, talked about the tax burden and how she wanted it lowered. So it's very convenient that when she opened her own business, she was very, very pro-capitalism. Um, so when and, she was involved in in the founding this uh, this publication at college in Boston, uh, she admired Adam Smith, who's the godfather of what we call capitalism. There were others too, but he's the one people remember in The Invisible Hand and so forth. Uh, and today uh, she embraces Marx. Yeah. And why shouldn't we believe, sir, that she is a complete phony and fraud who was running in a district that she knew was left-wing? She ran to the left of the left-wing Democrat who'd been there for 20 years. Why shouldn't we believe that she's a complete fraud and phony? I don't think that we should believe anything other than that. I think you're exactly right. And your point earlier about class, I think, goes to the point where she and the people like her want to be – they want to take the Democrats to the party of unity – but they do the sleight of hand where they don't mention that they're the ones that said they split everybody up into classes in the first place. But they they want to say that, that's that's an interesting point too. And I and the way I thought about it a lot when I was writing Meritopia. Let me ask you what you think, Bart. And the way I put it is that the the the, the leftists uh, they they push us into groups, right? And that they they actually what they do is they. Talk about us as the masses. And then when it works to their favor, they balkanize us by also assigning us groups. So they'll talk about unity, the general interest, the public welfare. We're all part of a mass. And then all of a sudden, they'll reverse course and they'll talk about this race, this religion, this income group, and so forth and so on, in order to balkanize us and turn us against each other. Right, because it serves their purpose. They, exactly. They want to they join everybody together when it suits them to stir up the vote. But then when they want to talk about policy, they have to have everybody fighting everyone. So, they so when people make- call here and say, can't we all get along, as long as you have these status progressives, these radicals, how can we all get along when they don't want us to get along? Uh, I think and by they- the way, getting along is one thing. Having the government force us to get along, that is to accept one position, one idea, one way of doing things, that is the kind of get-along that we don't want either. Exactly. All right, Martin. Very, very sharp young man. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Mark, Mark, come on. Gotta talk about Mueller. Can't stand the bastard. Don't keep talking about him. Good Lord. Okay, let's try a few more. People justifying populism. Let's go to Smokey. Charlottesville, Virginia on the Mark Levin app. Yes, Smokey. Hey, Mark. It's great to talk to you. So, uh, Thank you. I just wanted to, to take issue a little bit with what, what you're populism? populism. What is it? I think, I think populism, it's not even necessarily an ideological position. It's just having a message that can appeal to the people broadly. I mean, you no, can it's have left-wing not. populism. No, it's not. No, it's not. 
you can have a message that can appeal to people broadly. Populism is a ideology. Well, then, what what I would I would consider somebody like Ron Paul a populist, but also somebody like Bernie Sanders, and yet I think they're exactly the opposite. So it means I mean, nothing. Do you agree with me? Would I agree with you? I mean, that a radical libertarian and a radical mar- uh, socialist, almost soft Marxist, that they're that their appeals the same. I'd say that there's overlap. But so what? What is that? Where does that get us? I mean, what I'm saying is... Do you I, believe in... What's the difference? Let's try it this way. What's the difference between populism and republicanism? I mean, there, there's a whole lot of different kinds of republicans, Mark. I, I don't even... I didn't say I, republicans. Little r, republicanism. You know, like a republic as opposed to a democracy. What's the difference between populism and republicanism? Well, Let I, me do it this way. And this is for everybody. Look at the Constitution. You like the Constitution, right? I love the Constitution. You love it. You revere it. You defend it. Yes, sir. Where's populism in the Constitution? Nowhere. Everything in the Constitution is put in there to prevent populism and centralism. Everything. Checks and balances. Division of powers between different levels of government. Uh, limited terms for senators and, and members of the House. A court where judges have lifetime appointments. A difficult amendment process. The only direct participatory part of our Constitution is the House of Representatives every two years, right? Right. And so the populists, and follow me, sir. So the populists and the progressives of the early part of the last century, Democrats and Republicans, or if you will, the Bernie Sanders types and the Ron Paul types. What did they fight for? To destroy the United States Senate so it no longer represents the states. You have direct election of senators. That's populism, right? Right. Look at the Declaration of Independence. Where's populism in the Declaration of Independence? There's republicanism, representation. There are unalienable rights that you're born with. There's no populism There's no democracy. There's no vote. There is representative government. So our Constitution is built the way it's built for a reason. So when people just just so easily throw around, hey, I'm a populist and I'm a popular. What does that mean? Does that mean if in your community everybody's a populist that they can vote to take your property rights away? What does that mean? That's called the mob. That's a mob. Now, if you have a message that has a popular appeal like liberty or capitalism or perhaps socialism and tyranny. That's a different thing. But populism is an ideology. People now call it nationalism, populism, conservatism. Do you know why they do that, Smokey? In order to try and give some legitimacy to this idea of nationalism, populism. Nationalism. Look at the Constitution again. Very limited, the federal government, the national government. People confuse nationalism with Americanism. Americanism is different than nationalism. We're Americans. We're not nationalists. I agree. Go right ahead. And and I I think one of the big problems is how, like what you were saying at the beginning of the last century, how we've, we've really nationalized our politics. And I think what I'm saying is that I think populism might be somewhat necessary to win a national election. And, I, I mean, that's, that's not a good thing. But well, then I, you oppose, what, do you oppose the Electoral College? 
No, Seems I, to no, me I, if you're a populist, you want to get rid of the Electoral College. I, I absolutely don't, but we really well, have Well, but the, hold on now. But the whole notion of the Electoral College is a rejection of the popular vote per se and populism. Otherwise, we wouldn't have an Electoral College. Why did they put that in there? To protect us from the mob. To protect us from the mob. Do me a favor. I want to send you a copy of Rediscovering Americanism. Uh, Would you read that and call me back? And by the way, you can still hold your positions. I just want you to read it. Do you mind? No, I would love to read it. Thank you very much. All right, don't hang up, Smokey. You're a very, very kind gentleman, very nice man. Don't hang up. All right. This gets me in trouble, of course, with the populists. Yes, I'm a populist. No, you're not. You believe in Americanism and the Constitution and the Declaration. None of these populists will debate me. It's an amazing thing. They won't debate me. The liberals won't debate me. Please. I'll be very respectful. David, Superior, Wisconsin, the great WDSM. Go. Thank you for taking my call, Mark. And so, so many isms, so many isms. Before, before I uh, get to my point, I just want to... I'm going to have you. an aneurysm. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, we're not. We want, we, want to, uh, we want to all thank you on behalf of the nation for uh, Life, Liberty, and Levin. That was an awesome interview with, with, um, with your last guest and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Allen West. And looking yeah. forward to this one coming up with with uh, Rick Harrison. By, I, by I the way, like Rick Harrison stick- from the show Pawn Stars is absolutely terrific. Go ahead. I'm sorry, David. Uh, no, that's okay. I just feel like I have to pick up the slack for. I mean, I love Fox News, but they got to run some promos, guys. Come on, you know. There's a lot of people who haven't heard. I've of told them we need more promos. But you know what I noticed? I looked at the ratings. You know, our Sunday 10 p.m. show has higher ratings than every single show on CNN during the week. During the week. Thank you, David. Take care of yourself. Mark Levin, America's think tank. And you can call him at 877-381-3811. You know, my favorite place to sit, if you listen to this program, you know, is on my X chair. I sit on it hours and hours every day. Uh, it's here in the bunker. It is a beautiful chair. It, the, it's got a special uh, a spot on it that allows me to adjust it for my lumbar. Um, I recently had a disc problem. They call it the L5, the lower left disc, I guess it is. And I'd sit here in pain and I'd have to stand up a lot. Well, this chair is unbelievable. I'm telling you the truth. I even took a picture of it and put it up on my Facebook site, Mark Levin Show Facebook. The X chair is not only the most modern and stylish piece of furniture you may own. It is luxuriously comfortable, and I mean that. It molds itself to my body, giving me ideal posture, which in turn gives me more energy, better concentration, and more productivity than I ever thought possible. And I'll tell you what, I sit here now pain-free. It's true. Don't waste another day in that generic chair that's not really comfortable. It's not really built for you. That's what you want. You want a chair that is really personalized. Get an X chair and feel the difference, and you will. And if you own a company, get them for the entire office and see how much your employees appreciate them and how productive they become as a result. 877-381-3811. 
Here's a special deal for you, my listeners, only for my listeners. Go to xchairlevin.com, xchairlevin.com, and get $100 off. $100 off. That's xchairlevin.com, or you can call their toll-free number, 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. Again, 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. So go to xchairlevin.com. And by the way, if you use code Levin Footrest now, and I don't know how long this will last, Levin Footrest, you'll get a footrest with the chair, and I use both. And you'll get it for free. You'll get the footrest for free, not the chair. So go to xchairlevin.com now, use code Levin Footrest, and get a free footrest. XChairLevin.com or one eight four 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 x chair I felt like I had to, uh, given the, uh, the bottom of the hour, I had to cut off David a little too soon, and he was an excellent caller. So I want to go back to you, Dave. Go right ahead. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it very much. Um, I have a little different perspective on, on the school system because my parents were career musicians. They had other uh, talents, but they were career musicians. So I was raised traveling, except for my first two years in public school in New York. And we traveled a lot. So I was always the new kid. Uh, I went to eight fourth grades. Eight. All right, now I'm giving you a little time, but I won't have time yeah. for your entire life history. I'm, I, no, I'm not doing that. My perspective was that I saw things that maybe a lot of people didn't see except people who traveled a lot and went to school a lot and that the incrementalism of communism was alive and well and that's why books like um the night is dark and i am far from home and lieutenant colonel allen's west comment is that they have be- they have been for many years indoctrination centers to make good little civilians th- and we want to follow the rules and we want to be good little civilians but not good little socialists and so right now today I lost a position at a university, a very high-level position at the university, because I had someone ask me to pray for them, and I didn't do it except into my office, and then they went and reported me. Okay. There's no tolerance on the left in the university. All right. Wait, 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 wait. You're, you're bouncing all over the place. Are you saying that you were fired? Are you a professor? Uh, no, I'm not. I was I was a professional uh, IT. I was a webmaster for the college. Okay, you are you you were an IT in the college. You were a full time employee. Full time, ready that ready. Hold on, to- hold on. Follow my questions because I want to focus you because we got a big audience and I don't want to bounce around. You were fired today. No, a year ago, um, the end of this month. Okay, because you were praying with an employee. The, correct. Yes. And, and that's the basis for your firing? It was a setup, yeah. What yep. was a setup? That you were praying? And, right. They, that I prayed and that I was a Trump supporter, and I kept that quiet on the campus. All right, now, now we're getting even further down. We were supposed to be talking about populism versus socialism. Now, do you have right. litigation going on? Is that what's happening? Uh, I'm working on that. Still, so you're working still. on litigation. All right. Well, thank you for your call, sir. I have no idea what's going on here. None. None. But I can't handle every case that everybody's bringing up here. Let's continue here. Let's try Dick, Columbia, South Carolina, Mark Levin app. Go ahead. Mark, thanks for taking my call. Populism, very easy. It is a popularity contest. 
You throw the populace a bone, and they'll vote for you. You throw them what they want, you give them free handouts, and it's like voting for a prom queen or a prom king. He who gets the most votes wins. It's the equivalent of democracy. It's two wolves and a sheep at, uh, voting on what's for dinner. Same concept. And democracy, per se can easily lead to tyranny. We talked about this at great length last night. We've talked about it before. It's it, it, the, the form of government, unless it is specifically set up to protect the individual, uh, can be tyrannical whether you vote for people or don't vote for people. Sure. And our Constitution was specifically set up to protect the principles, that is, individualism and liberty, that are set forth in the Declaration. Most governments are not set up that way. And so to, to simply say, well, I'm a nationalist populist, and, and, uh, and as a result of that, people don't realize that you are eviscerating the constitutional system. Without question, because you take the individual out of it. You, you take the individual out, exactly. And then, uh, and then we talk like the left. The forgotten man. That phrase came from Franklin Roosevelt. Mark, look at Europe. You have all of the elected officials... They're all virtue signaling, signaling. They're all holier than thou, and they're just about as rotten as the entire Democrat Party. Well, good, when, good point. When you look behind the scenes, it's the same thing. Europe has a democratic system. It's very important that we talk about our republic that we have in these United States. We don't talk about it often enough. Our politicians, even the most conservative ones, talk about a democracy. We have a democratic republic, and there is a distinct difference. All right, sir. Appreciate the call. I think these conversations are worthwhile. If we can keep it on point. Let us go to Joe, Baltimore, Maryland, on the Mark Levin app. How are you, sir? Hey, Mark. How's it going, buddy? Good. Baltimore's terrible as usual. But in oh, any geez. event, um, I was telling Mr. Call Screener, um, I want to tell about class. I once had a school teacher back in 1981. Of course, I'm showing my, telling my age. Her name's Miss Sensible. Very special. Some teachers stand out to be very special. She was a black lady. She was a racist. Okay, teacher. okay. What did she teach you? Okay. What she did was one day <clears throat> she was in class. She went around and asked each one of us what the occupation was of our parents. One was a machinist, one was a custodian, one was an airplane pilot, one was the undertaker. She says, you see, she articulated so well. She said, see, we're all in one class. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter what your occupation is. And I just thought that was so special. It is special. And uh, meaning we're all individuals in one society. And that's exactly yep. right. Thank you for your call. I appreciate it. That's where we are. And so when people who are conservative start getting a little lazy with the nomenclature, it, it, they may not realize, because of all the chess beaters out there, that in many ways they are embracing a, uh, an abstraction, but it is an abstraction that is similar to what the left embraces. Dominic, Queens, New York, the great WABC, go. Hi, Mark, how are you? Okay, how are you? Good. Um... I just uh, I heard your conversation briefly about populism and socialism, and you know I was in school probably about twenty years ago, and I brought up the fact that 
the Democratic Party was turning socialism, uh, turning to socialism. I called it Western style, Western European style socialism. And the the teacher looked at me very confused, like I didn't know what I was talking about, and he tried to basically put me on the spot to prove my point. And you know, after hearing a little bit of your conversation, not unfortunately not the whole thing, I I um, when we talk about democratic socialism and populism, that's basically, to me, the same thing, except you're taking the voters, you're taking the population, and they're voting to voting for government to take your stuff. And at That's the end right. of the day, it's uh, socialism, right? It's a tyranny, I think you were talking about earlier, that we're, we're basically living in a tyranny again. And by the way, and how does populism manifest itself? At the at, What is it? People vote? And therefore, we know what the the overall population wants. And how does that work in the context of unalienable rights? Can people vote on your unalienable rights? Of course not. And if populism is the way to go, I hear a lot of Trump supporters saying, I'm a populist. Well, if you're a Trump supporter and you're a populist, then you oppose the Electoral College, you favor the popular vote, and we lose. So I I don't... if, if, If the framers of the Constitution were populists... So many of the protections that are in the Constitution wouldn't even exist, including much of the Bill of Rights. They were concerned about the mob. They were concerned about factionalism. They were concerned about a monarchy. They were concerned about all these, and they're disparate forms of government, which do not have the protection of the individual and unalienable rights. Populism has nothing to do with individualism and unalienable rights. Nationalism is just a throwaway term that replaces the word patriotism. Well, what we really mean is Americanism, not nationalism. What's this nationalism? What does that mean? America first. No, Americanism first. The principles that undergird our country. That's what the whole system is about, or supposed to be anyway. All right, Dominic, thank you for your call. I don't know how we got on this, but here we are. Doug, Fort Worth, Texas, the great WBAP. Go. Doug, are you there, sir? Hi. Yeah, can you speak, please, quickly? Yes, uh, I'd like to make a comment about Edward Bernays. Uh, Thanks for your call. All right, dump the guy. Hello? Thank you for telling me. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Some exciting news. Simply Safe is now valued at one billion dollars. One billion. This company used to be just five guys working together. The founder only started the company because he wanted to help his friends who were burglarized. Now it's worth a billion dollars. Simply Safe protects over two million people. And here's what makes them so great. Simply Safe is comprehensive protection for your home with round-the-clock professional monitoring and police dispatch. Cutting-edge technology. No wires. No drilling. None of that. You get protection against intruders, fires, leaks, and burst pipes. Simply Safe keeps working during power outages. Did you know that? Downed Wi-Fi, even if a burglar smashes your keyboard. There's no killing this system. This system is easy to use, incredibly intuitive. It takes just minutes to set it up. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts or hidden fees, and 24/7 monitoring is only 14.99 a month. CNET, PC Magazine, and the Wirecutter 
All names Simply Safe, their top pick for home security. Order your Simply Safe system now at simplysafemark.com, and my listeners get free shipping and free returns. That's simplysafemark.com to protect your family and your home today. Simplysafemark.com. If you haven't done it, well, I don't know why you haven't done it. You really ought to do it. You know, there's all this talk, as you know, it's, it's so pathetic about Russia and collusion. Aren't you sick and tired of the whole damn thing? But here is something that's never talked about. Dianne Feinstein and her husband, who's an enormously wealthy man, their connections with the Chinese government. And Feinstein has spent a career sitting on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Isn't that amazing? And there's a story in Politico and the San Francisco Chronicle and other places now. We are just learning today that Feinstein had a Chinese spy connection she didn't know about. Her driver. A staffer in U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein's San Francisco office was fired a few years ago after being linked to Chinese spying in the Bay Area. According to Politico magazine story on Silicon Valley espionage, the Feinstein staffer was suspected of providing political intelligence, but nothing classified, they write, to his handlers, with one former intelligence official telling author Zach Dorfman that the suspected informant was run by officials based at the local Chinese consulate. A local source who knew about the incident confirmed to us that the FBI showed up at Feinstein's office in Washington about five years ago to alert the then chairwoman of the Senate Intelligence Committee that her driver was being investigated for possible Chinese spying. Besides driving her around when she was in California, the staffer also served as a gopher in her San Francisco audience, uh, uh, office and as a liaison to the Asian-American community, even attending Chinese consulate functions for the senator. Man, they must have been laughing behind her back. According to our source, the intrigue started years earlier when the staffer took a trip to Asia to visit relatives and was befriended by someone who continued to stay in touch with, touch with him on subsequent visits. That someone was connected with the People's Republic of China's Ministry of State Security. He didn't even know what was happening, that he was being recruited, says our source. He just thought it was some friend. Well, the FBI apparently concluded the driver hadn't revealed anything of substance. They interviewed him, and and Diane forced him to retire, and that was the end of it, says the source. Diane forced him to retire. Hmm, it's a friendly... None of her staff ever knew what was going on, the source said. They just kept it quiet. Dianne Feinstein should not be on the Senate Intelligence Committee, should she? Should she? And you will never convince me that this driver didn't hear her on the phone talking about intelligence information or necessarily look over her shoulder while she may have been reading something. I don't believe that for two minutes. Not at all. And it's funny how this has been kept secret for years, for years, to protect her. I've always wondered about the China connection with her and her husband because it's substantial. Maybe when uh, Mr. Mueller's done uh, dealing with uh, Manafort, maybe he'll get into uh, Feinstein and uh, her husband. What do you think, folks? You think that's possible? 
Nah, no, nah, that's not possible because she's a limp. Nobody will bother her. But for years, she had a driver who was a spy. But she didn't know. And she's on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Pretty incredible, don't you think? Phil, Memphis, Tennessee, XM Satellite, go. Yeah, Mark, hi. Um, I'm just wondering if you could mention something about these lobbyists and Feinstein and all these people making millions and millions of dollars in Congress. Don't you think that if we were able to limit terms all the way from the president of the United States of America down to the... Well, the president is term limited, sir. Yes, it is, but two terms. Okay, but I mean, all the way... President's limited to two terms, 10 years total, for instance, if there's an assassination or something else of that sort. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, but I, my, my point being, if we're able to limit terms for some of these elected and non-elected officials, wouldn't that decrease their power? And decrease, Yes, decrease- I'm all for it. Absolutely, I'm all for it. They sit there, some of them for 40 years, some of them 50 years. 50 years. Clearly that wasn't intended, so we need to fix that. It won't fix everything, but it'll fix something. Yes, I strongly support term limits, which is why I proposed them in the Liberty Amendments. We'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, I saw this today, and I, I'm scratching my head, honestly. Cook Political Report, this is from the Hill newspaper, but it's in other places, moves Cruz O'Rourke Senate race in Texas to lean Republican. To lean Republican from likely Republican. And they report the Texas Senate race between Senator Ted Cruz and Representative Beto O'Rourke has been shifted in the Democrats' direction by the Cook Political Report, a major nonpartisan election handicapper. And by the way, they screw up all the time. But they're looking at a couple of polls here. Cook shifted the race from its likely Republican column to lean Republican today, stating that recent polling suggests a tighter race. Earlier this week, a Texas Lyceum poll released Wednesday showed the race between the two is neck and neck, with Cruz leading O'Rourke 41 to 39 among likely voters. I think the goal is to have registered voters, not likely voters. But anyway, Cook also noted a Gravis marketing poll from early July that showed Cruz with a nine-put lead over O'Rourke, 51 to 42. Texas has not elected a Democrat to the Senate in three decades, but the party thinks it has a chance to pull off an upset with O'Rourke, who's raised an enormous amount of money. I don't know whether to believe all this or not, but I have to confess I'm concerned. I'm concerned. I mean, I believe Ted Cruz is the very likely winner. But if so, why is it close? Lots of people have been moving into Texas, not just aliens and illegal aliens, but people out of California and other states. It has no state income tax and so forth. It's a very, very wonderful business climate. Texas is Texas. 
So this is concerning to me. Let me put it that way. I believe Ted Cruz will win, but it's concerning to me. Uh, This is uh, the kind of upset that could occur if they have this so-called blue wave. Which, of course, we hope they don't have. So I wanted to point that out. Um, And I don't know what kind of campaign they're running down there. I honestly don't. I don't even know who the campaign manager is at this point. I could look into it, but, but I don't know. I don't feel like this should be a close race. I really don't. Then um, China. China plans tariffs on $60 billion of U.S. goods in latest trade salvo. You know, I've explained my position on this over, 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 and over again. I believe in free trade. We've never actually had free trade in this country, but freer trade. I don't believe we should be going to war with tariffs, which are taxes, with us and our allies. But China's a different issue. China's the enemy. China views us as the enemy. Um, Believe it or not, France does not view us as the enemy. Canada does not view us as the enemy. Japan does not view us as the enemy. China does. China has gotten enormously powerful by stealing our ideas. I don't mean our political ideas. I mean our technological ideas. They are thieves through and through, sanctioned by the government. The government is the biggest perpetrator. Cyber thieves, our companies over there, they shake them down. And so it would be crazy to have free trade with China since China is the enemy. It'd be crazy to have free trade with any enemy. Cuba, North Korea, Russia. And so it's not a matter of economics to me when it comes to China. And this is where uh, some of the libertarians and I uh, disagree. As I say, I'm very much a libertarian when it comes to economic issues and often domestic issues, but not when it comes to national defense. And this is a national security, national defense issue. That's different because that's a matter of life and death. China is being very aggressive in what it's doing. China is still propping up North Korea. China's in our hemisphere. China's in Africa. China's in the Middle East. China has a big picture view of what they plan to do. And what they plan to do is knock us off as the greatest superpower on the face of the earth. And if the Democrats in this country have their way, that's exactly what will take place. But I'm not one of them. China plans tariffs on $60 billion of U.S. goods and latest trade salvo, the Reuters. China proposed retaliatory tariffs on $60 billion worth of U.S. goods, ranging from liquefied natural gas to some aircraft on Friday, as a senior Chinese diplomat cast doubt on prospects of talks with Washington to solve their bitter trade conflict. To me, again, this isn't a matter of imbalance of trade with China. It's a matter of national security. It's a matter of that they are a... uh, a criminal state, a criminal government. Our private sector spends hundreds of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars every year on research and development. One figure I saw was over $600 billion. But whatever the figure is, to have these thieves come in and steal it so they can build bigger, better, more accurate missiles, 
and aircraft carriers and fake islands, nuclear weapons, MIRV missiles and all the rest of it is simply unacceptable as a threat to this nation. And so they want to threaten $60 billion of our goods. Now here, let me tell you the problem for the Chinese government. Their economy is about one-fourth the size of ours. One-fourth the size of ours. They're going to run out of things to tax. The president's talking about placing tariffs of about 25% on $200 billion worth of goods. The Chinese can't put taxes on anything else. That's all they've got. Now, you might say, Mark, but this is a penalty on the American people. As you've said over and over and over again, a tariff is a tax on the American people. So, in other words, if the Chinese want to ship something into our country cheaper than we can make it or get it elsewhere, and we're going to tax it, that means the American consumer would pay more. I'm saying in this instance, the priority is our safety, our security, and protecting our technology. We have been negotiating with the Chinese for a decade to try and convince them to stop stealing our stuff. They won't stop stealing our stuff. The Canadians don't steal it. The Japanese don't steal it. The French don't steal it. The Chinese government steals it. And they're not our friend. And they steal it for a reason. To build fake islands in the South China Sea. To build economic and military bases on continents all over the world. I've done number of shows on this on Levin TV. A number of shows on this. They have a plan. We have nothing. We have no plan. And of course, with all the distraction with Russia, Russia, Mala, Mala, Russia, Russia, Stormy Daniel, all that crap, the nation isn't focused where the nation needs to be focused. So in this regard, I would tell the president, stick it to him. Not because it's smart trade. It's not smart trade, but it's smart national security. It's an enemy state. It's an enemy state. Let's stop pretending otherwise. Doesn't mean we have to declare war. Doesn't mean we have to go to war, but it's an enemy state. And you don't have free trade with an enemy state. You have it with your allies. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. has a new movie coming out. It's called Death of a Nation. He'll be with us in about 10 minutes, too. And not since 1860 have the Democrats so fanatically refused to accept the result of a free election. That year, their target was Abraham Lincoln. Now their target is President Trump and his supporters. From best-selling author Dinesh D'Souza, award-winning producer Gerald Mullen, comes their latest film, Death of a Nation with stunning historical recreations and a searching examination of fascism and white supremacy. The film cuts through progressive lies to expose hidden history and explosive truths. Lincoln united his party and saved America from the Democrats the first time. Can Trump and we come together and save America for the second time? Well, Death of a Nation, now playing in theaters nationwide, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Learn more at deathofanationmovie.com, deathofanationmovie.com. Did it already start, Mr. Producer? 
It starts today, right now, Friday. So you might want to check it out. Now is a great weekend to go. Uh, that's, and you know what? I'll see it this weekend too. As a matter of fact, I love Dinesh D'Souza movies very, very much. They're really good movies. They're very well done. Donnie Heath, Texas, on the Mark Levin app. What's going on in Texas, Donnie? Hey, the heat. The heat is, and a couple of crazy dogs out here getting into it with the neighbor right. dogs. So let Tell me in know. English. What, what's going on in Texas there, Donnie? Well, uh, we've got a situation with this uh, Beto uh, fella. He is, his ground troops are running around the neighborhoods here. And it's kind of bizarre because he, one of them came up to my house and asked me who I was voting for, in which I replied, Cruz, I've always been a Cruz supporter from day one. Listened to you for over 10 years. Next day, Mark, I got a a text on my phone asking me again if I would consider voting for Beto, which I... Well, Well, let me ask you a question, Donnie. Do you see more grassroots activity going on there for him than for Cruz right now? Is that what you see? All over. All over the DFW. I mean, it's on... What's that? Yeah, I see him all over social media. I, uh... All right, I get your point. Thank you for your call, my friend. Now we have Carla... From Kinney, Texas, Sirius Satellite. What's going on, Carla? She's gone. But she's saying the same thing as the other guy. They have a better ground game going on? Hmm. No idea. I don't know what's going on there, but something better pick up. Kurt Anderson, South Carolina. How are you, sir? Uh, yes, hi. Thanks, uh, Mr. Levin, for taking my call. Um, just a little, uh, your your uh, call screener said that, um, you know, the... Why, why does everybody ask, tell me what my call screener said? Or what they said to my call screener? You're on the air right now. What do you want to tell me? Well, first of all, I want to tell you that the... And I'm sure that you know that there's no um, legislative... Or the legislature decided that there was a um, time limit or a... a um, lifetime appointment for the Supreme Court, or actually that's in the Constitution. The the, uh, Constitution says there's a lifetime. Constitution creates the Supreme Court. The Constitution provides for lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court, correct? Not the district court, so I think that that could be... That's correct. The district courts and the circuit courts are created by Congress. Go ahead. That's right, and I I think that could be one one, uh, improvement that we could have um, so that we could have like a five-year, ten-year, six-year, I don't care what it is, but they don't have to be the, the district court. Well, I really don't believe Congress is going to do that, do you? Did somebody introduce a bill to do that? I don't know if they did, but I mean... The only way that would happen is through convention of states. The Congress is not going to do it. You just said, but Congress, means- you just said Congress created the circuit courts and the district courts, correct? Well, it's certainly a legislative fix that they could make, right? But they're not going to, are they? Tell me, have they done it any time since the founding of this nation? They no, they have. Not a constitutional convention. 
It's not a constitutional convention. It's a convention of states. They could do it now, but they're not going to. That's the whole point of Article 5 Convention of States, that the federal government is not going to do the things the federal government should do. Well, I, I agree with that. But with respect to um, the reason I call with respect to the the um, populism versus republicanism, um, the fact is that the um, I think America First is mainly uh, trying to, um, and that populism as as understood by Trump is trying to protect the people that are in the, um, the United States that are legally here and um, protect the people that are here. Um, that has nothing to do with populism whatsoever. It does, because in international trade, what he's trying to do is say that we... I, I know what he's trying to do, and what he's trying to do should be done, and it's follow the immigration laws and secure the border. What does that have to do with populism? Well, the immigration laws have not been, have not been followed because they're the, um, the corporations are, want the, the workers and the Democrats want the... Um, want That's the fine. So what... Sir, if you believe in populism, then you've got to get rid of the Electoral College, which means that Hillary Clinton's president of the United States. Do you believe in that's populism? That's not a necessarity. I mean, that's not necessarily. Yeah, I guess it is. You don't get to pick and choose your populism. populism. You, don't get to pick, you don't get to pick and choose your populism. I agree with it, therefore it's populism. I disagree with it, therefore it's not. I've already explained all this, which is the Constitution is set up to protect the individual not populism. The Declaration of Independence talks about the individual, not the group, not the community. You guys get very, very close. You skate very, very close to the hard left. And populism, it doesn't work when we vote, we win. When they vote and they win, it doesn't count. You can have the Electoral College and still believe in populism with respect no, you can't. to protecting the the individuals and what what they populism have. isn't about the individual it's called populism when you care about well, individualism called individualism then there's constitutionalism if you try you to if you try to compartmentalize everything too much i'm not compartmentalizing a thing sir i'm giving you your history we have a declaration we have a constitution if we have everything by plebiscite, uh, then the Declaration is gone and the Constitution is gone. Do you believe in plebiscites? No, I do not. Why not? No, because for the same reason I don't believe that democracy works. Well, that's populism, democracy. Well, it, it, Sir, you really, you really, I've done my best. You're going to go round and round with me because you're very ideologically committed to this word. But my suggestion is you really ought to look into it a little bit more deeply. You really should. Because I think what our discussion showed is populism is not our friend. Thank you for your call. Nor will it get you what you think. Aaron, Dallas, Texas, the great WBAP. Go. Hey, Mark. It's such an honor to speak to you. I, I think God wanted me to get through. I don't know. But uh, at any rate. I doubt it, but thank you. <laughs> At any rate, um, I live in Dallas, in East Dallas, and I am extremely concerned. I have never noticed in any other election, there are Beto O'Rourke lawn signs everywhere. It, it, it's crazy. I don't see cruise signs. I've ordered a cruise sign. You have, you have to pay $25 for a cruise sign to put in your front yard. But I am, I am really worried. I don't understand what's going on. I mean, the population of Dallas has changed. Well, Texas has changed. Well, that's part of it. 
All right, got to go. Appreciate your call, Aaron. We'll be right back. Mark Levin, the thunder on the right. Call in now, 877-381-3811. Dinesh D'Souza's brand new movie is out right now as I speak. Tonight's the night to go, Death of a Nation. How are you, sir? Great to be on the show, Mark. A pleasure. It's my pleasure. Tell us the guts of this movie, because um, I'm certainly sympathetic with what this says here that I'm reading. Basically, the movie examines two big ideas. The first one is racism or white supremacy, and the second is fascism. Uh, ever since uh, the 2016 election, the left has been flinging these charges at Trump and at the right. The basic idea here is that Trump is a fascist, Trump is a racist, uh, and these, the point of all this is to basically say that even though Trump may have won the election democratically uh, and gotten an electoral majority, he doesn't have any legitimacy. He doesn't even deserve to be the president because he's kind of like Hitler in 1933. Um, now, what I do in the movie is I take you into a kind of deep dive, uh, both into the history of racism and fascism, to tell you what those things mean, uh, who committed the horrific racial crimes uh, of the 20th century, and in the case of slavery, the 19th century. Uh, and then I bring you right up to the present, and I ask the, the kind of crushing question, where are the racists and the fascists now? That's the theme of the movie. It's amazing, isn't it, that the Democrat Party's been able to whitewash its history? Well, the reason they could do this, uh, Mark, is because they dominate academia, the media, and Hollywood. And when you have all those three big megaphones, you can put out a lot of big lies. And even if uh, you or I know differently, we don't have a, as big a megaphone to contradict them. And so they've been putting this stuff in the classrooms, on the History Channel, in NPR, in Michael Moore's documentaries. And when young people get this from all different directions, they think it has to be true. How else could I be finding about it from, out about it from so many different quarters? But it's the same progressive narrative, and it leaves out inconvenient facts, and it's spun to serve progressive ideological ends. You know, I had uh, Shelby Steele on my Fox program a couple of weeks ago, and he said, oppression is over. Oppression is over. Slavery is over. Segregation is over. Freedom. And he says people are having a difficult time dealing with liberty, with freedom. And so what do they do? They complain about the system. They complain. They, they try and drag history into it and so forth and so on. That's taking place, too, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, now... I agree with Shelby Steele as far as the government is concerned and the laws. We certainly have equal rights under the laws, and, and that is uh, a, a wonderful thing. But I would say that the Democratic Party, the way it has organized itself, it has established a kind of new type of ethnic plantation today. It's obviously not the old slave plantation, but what it is is what I call multicultural or multiracial plantations. They've got ghettos for the blacks and barrios for the Latinos and reservations for the Native Americans. And all those places are markedly similar. You have dilapidated housing and broken families and a high degree of violence uh, and, and a, a sense of intergenerational dependency and no one gets ahead and there's nihilism and despair. 
And in, amazingly, all these places are administered by the Democratic Party, and they deliver 90% of their votes to the Democratic Party. So I think that if you're looking someplace for institutional racism, there it is. I think he'd agree with most of that. Let me ask you something. Your ancestry is Indian, you, um, and you write you know, brilliantly about uh, the issues of race in this country, the history of race in this country. Uh, what, what really has motivated you to jump into this with two feet? Well, I think um, I was 17 years old when I first came to America. I had $500 in my pocket, um, and I was coming to a new country as an exchange student. Uh, what I saw in America literally amazed me. The kind of country this is, the abundance of life that this country provides to the ordinary guy. Um, you know, the rich guy lives well anywhere in the world, but a country is judged by what kind of prospects, what kind of chance it offers to the ordinary fellow to climb up the ladder of success. Uh, I also realized that I can do things with my life in this country. I can be the architect of my own destiny and write the script of my own life in a way that would really be unimaginable in India and very difficult even in most other places in the world. So my politics is really based on that. It's based upon defending the idea of America and the ladders of opportunity that enable a brown-skinned guy like me with nothing to his name to be able to better his life and, and, and be in the driver's seat of his own life beautifully put now you say we're on this collision course really this this new civil war we're headed for explain that well what's going on here is that um, the democrats have essentially adopted fascist tactics while blaming fascism on trump and on the right now remember fascism has always been a phenomenon of the left Mussolini was a socialist. Uh, Hitler's party was the National Socialist Party. If you just read through the Nazi 25-point platform, which is what the Nazis uh, campaigned on, you'll see state control of banks, state control of insurance companies, state control of education, state control of health care, state control of religious liberty, and, and down and down it goes. Now, this is not a conservative or right-wing agenda by any stretch of the imagination. Um, now, amazingly, the reason the, the left is able to get away with what it does is it looks at things like Charlottesville, uh, the Charlottesville rally. Now, that was a tragedy. A person got killed and got run over. But what I want to talk about for a moment is the Charlottesville narrative. And the Charlottesville narrative was, hey, look, there's white supremacy and it's all on the right. These are right wingers who are who are Trump supporters. Now, Mark, the explosive part of this movie and the accompanying book, Death of a Nation, is I blow this out of the water. I show that this is not true, that the organizer of the Charlottesville rally, Jason Kessler, is a left-winger. He was an Obama activist. He was an Occupy Wall Street guy. And the media knew about this because it was on the Southern Poverty Law Center website, but they decided not to go into it because it would be very inconvenient for their narrative. In the film itself, I interviewed the poster boy of white supremacy, Richard Spencer. Again, a guy routinely presented as a right-wing neo-Nazi, a right-wing white supremacist. But it becomes really obvious in the movie that this guy is not only not a right-winger, he's a left-winger, and one might even say a far left-winger. Because in the interview, I say to him, I go, you tell me, all men are created equal, true or false? He goes, false. I go, um, uh, where do our rights come from? He goes, well, they don't come from God. I go, well, where do they come from? He goes, our rights come from the state. The state gives us our rights. 
so this guy turns out to be a statist, a collectivist. I ask him, what do you think of Reagan? He goes, he was a terrible president. I say, who are your favorite presidents? And he names one Democrat after the other. And so what we begin to realize is that we have been spun a narrative. The left has concocted the Charlottesville narrative for ideological ends. Ultimately, they're taking, if you will, the fascism on the left that they embody and foisting it on the right. And that's a big, big lie. That is fascinating. Now, are you, are you having any problems uh, lining up theaters? That always seems to be a little tough. Mark, that's not a problem. The movie is in over a thousand theaters. It opened today. We're excited to see how it does over the weekend. I mean, look, you know, there's an article in yesterday's Washington Post. Uh, Dinesh claims that Hitler was a liberal Democrat. Now, the stupidity of this article is almost beyond description. I do not claim that Hitler was a liberal Democrat. I do show in the movie that the Nazis did lift some of their ideas, some of their bigoted and even murderous ideas. They were modeled on American progressives and on the Democratic Party. That's the crushing truth. But rather than face the truth, they can't refute it. So they create a straw man. Dinesh is saying that Hitler was a liberal Democrat because that can be then said to be prima facie absurd. So, gee, people don't need to see the movie. But they do need to see the movie because it's based on facts. The book has chapter and verse. And ultimately, I think if minorities see the movie, they will be not just walking away. They'll be running away from the Democratic Party. Well, that's a key, isn't it? That's a key. If we can get to people who normally vote Democrat because they believe the Democrat Party is the party of their salvation and they can really see the history of the party and where the party's taking them today, I think we'd make great progress. I think your movie could do that. I think, it, I, I think it can be a first step. Ultimately, I think, of course, Trump is the one who needs to, to you know, you might say, break up the Democratic plantation. Uh, in other words, try to figure out a way to bring the kind of economic prosperity that so much of the rest of the country is enjoying into the inner cities and into the Latino barrios of South Texas and onto the native reservations. Because given the choice between ladders of opportunity and the kind of rope of dependency that the left has to offer, I have no doubt doubt that people would choose the latter, but they need to have the latter in front of them. Death of a Nation, it's in a lot of theaters. It's probably in a theater near you. I would strongly encourage you to see it tonight, see it this weekend. Uh, I'm going to, and I want to thank you for producing another uh, another great historic movie, Dinesh D'Souza. Really appreciate it, Mark. If I may say, deathofanationmovie.com. You can actually put in your zip code and boom, it'll tell you the theaters that are playing right near you. So deathofanationmovie.com is how you find out where it's playing. Excellent. We'll link to that. All right. Take care of yourself. Thank you very much. All right. Be well. Let's go ahead and put the book up there, Mr. Producer. And uh, deathofanationmovie.com. Let's put that on our social site so people can just go there, put their uh, zip zip code in, he said, and uh, find out where the movie is. I would strongly encourage you, zip, okay, I would strongly encourage you folks to, uh, to check that out. You know, hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy. And you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash L-E-V-I-N, Levin. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't just stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. And as applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective 
that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And with results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Levin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash L-E-V-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash Levin because ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. We'll be right back. Mark Levin. Let's go to March, San Francisco, California, the great KSFO. Go right ahead. Oh, hi, Mark. Um, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, you bet. Yeah, I saw the movie this morning. You saw Dinesh's movie. Yes, I did. It's the third one that he made, and I've seen them all. And it's very well done. It's very educational. Uh, it shows the real dark side of the left, mm-hmm. the far left, and how it's, it's a, like a machine that is uh, diabolically, uh, you know, powered, you know, from the pit of hell. You know, yeah. it's, uh, you know, the Nazis, um, I learned about, you know, Nazis means um, nas- nationalism, socialism, and socialism. Mm-hmm. National that's socialist, what, yep. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. And I didn't know that, but, you know, it mm-hmm. shows how Mussolini, um, you know, uh, uh, was a socialist and that... Uh, he um he 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 learned from the the Democrat Party. And All so right. Well, people will people are going to watch it. Don't tell us everything. All right, Marge. I appreciate your call. Let's see here, Kevin, in California, the great eight seventy. The answer. How are you? Very well, sir. Yourself? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for what you do. I want to tell you, Dinesh is a great guest, and I look forward to seeing his new film. Yeah, he is terrific. I have a quick question for you. You had mentioned, you teased this about a, two, three weeks ago about a potential visit to L.A. Does that include the Reagan Library? I will be talking about it on Monday. Uh, no, this particular visit is not the Reagan Library, although that is by far my favorite place to go. Uh, I've had the privilege of seeing you there twice and meeting you, and it's been so inspirational, and I just want to thank you again, for putting on those events, and we look forward to seeing you back in this. uh... Well, let me ask you something. I'm running out of time, but our dear friend there, John Highbush, who is the executive director, does a better job than anybody in the country running anything. And he said, you know, Mark, you shouldn't wait for a book to come out here. You ought to come out every summer. Do you believe that? I certainly 100% believe that. The last time I saw you there was just for your visit there, and you had some very lovely people who were very inspirational. And I would love, and I would wait in line again to see you. Well, you're very, very kind. We have wonderful people who come to that event. Thank you, Kevin. Listen, next week I'll be, uh, I'll be announcing uh, what we'll be doing, KRLA and me. All right, just for you. Here we go.
practice officially over. The weekend begins right now. Don't forget, Sunday, 10 p.m. Eastern, what? Life, Liberty, and Levin on the Fox News Channel. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel, the Border Patrol, and ICE. Good night, Spritey. Good night, Griffey. Good night, Pepsi. Good night, Smokey. Good night, Zelda. Get Al-Qaeda. Get Hamas. Get Hezbollah. Get ISIS. Get, get all those bastards. And I'll see you on Monday. God bless.